Uh, President Faust, uh, fellow deans, colleagues on the faculty and staff, <coughs> students and guests, it's my pleasure to welcome you to this year's Horace de Lintz Memorial Lecture and to introduce our distinguished speaker, Professor E.J. Dion. The Lintz Lecture occurs every three years, and today we are honored to have Professor Dion speak to us as the William H. Bloomberg Visiting Professor at Harvard. This is an appointment in the spirit of President Faust's vision of One Harvard, bringing together the Divinity School, the Kennedy School, and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. It would be hard to exaggerate the impact E.J. Dion has already made on our campus with his deep knowledge of American political culture, his immense generosity of spirit, his winning sense of humor, and his love of teaching. So we're very grateful that he's here, and also grateful to Mayor Bloomberg, whose generous gift to the university enabled us to bring E.J. Dion to Harvard at this particularly important time. In the spirit of donors and visionaries, please allow me to uh, take a few minutes to talk about the donor of the Lintz Lecture Series and the terms of the gift. Mr. Horace de Lintz was a Harvard College graduate, class of 1891, who went on to become a lawyer and member of the bar in Carbon County, Pennsylvania. The terms of the memorial lectureship are as follows. In 1963, Mr. Lins bequeathed that the income of his gift should be used, quote, for the giving of one or more lectures every third year upon the inspiring things he may discern in the words Christo et Ecclesiae, which appear upon the Harvard seal. Now, to those of you who are listening carefully, which is, of course is everyone, <laughs> I hasten to note that the Harvard seal has changed and varied over the years, and now displays veritas without the surrounding words that Mr. Lentz saw on the Harvard seal at that time. So EJ, we want you not only to cover everything implied in the previous seal, but the current seal as well. <laughs> so no pressure. So um, Professor Dion is a distinguished journalist, widely published author, much sought after political commentator, and Washington Post op-ed columnist. In addition to his journalism work, Dion is a senior fellow in governance studies at the Brookings Institution, a government professor at Georgetown University, and a commentator on politics for National Public Radio, ABC's This Week, and MSNBC. He holds an AB summa cum laude in social studies from Harvard College in 1973, where he was elected to Phi Beta Kappa and was affiliated with Adams House, he also earned a DPhil in sociology from Balliol College in Oxford in 1982, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. His extensive published works include the influential 1991 bestseller, Why Americans Hate Politics, <laughs> which argued that several decades of political polarization was alienating a silent centrist majority. Just think if we hated politics 25 years ago. <laughs> um, yes. Looking at the books he has published since, he begins to have the appearance of a prophet. These include Stand Up, Fight Back, Republican Toughs, Democratic Wimps, and The Politics of Revenge, uh, published in 2004. Sold Out, uh, and this is with a no you, not a no. This is the Divinity School. Sold Out, you get it? <laughs> You're a hard audience. Uh, sold out, Reclaiming Faith and Politics After the Religious Right, which is published in 2008. Our Divided Political Heart, The Battle for the American Idea in an Age of Discontent, 
in 2012 and why the right went wrong, conservatism from Goldwater to the Tea Party and beyond in 2016. More recently, together with Norman Ornstein and Tom Mann, EJ has just published One Nation After Trump, a guide for the perplexed, the disillusioned, the desperate, <clears throat> and the not yet deported. <clears throat> this book not only offers an expert diagnosis of how we arrived at this moment in our political culture, but even more impressively lays out a fourfold way forward for our deeply fractured country. <clears throat> The first is building a new economy that reckons with the growing inequality and despair in many communities across our country. Secondly, a new patriotism based on a respectful pluralism as against populist and nativist inflected nationalism. Third, a new civil society based on a revivified sense of community all over the country. And fourthly, a new inclusive democracy to challenge what he calls a pervasive sense of political cynicism. What is remarkable, I think, about EJ's work is his ability to proclaim a progressive message without falling victim to elite condescension and to treat religious values seriously without capitulating to sanctimonious pieties and platitudes. These are unusual qualities, but wonderful ones for a Lynch lecturer. EJ's deep knowledge of public affairs, his long record of distinguished reporting and commentary, and his keen insight into the intersections of religion and public life make his a vital voice in our national conversation. So it is with very great pleasure that I invite E.J. Dion to deliver this year's Horace DeLens lecture <clears throat> with the title, quote, Fighting for Justice with an Open Heart, <clears throat> Conviction, Empathy, and the Niborian Imperative. E.J., thank you. I love that man. Uh, <laughs> that, was, that was so generous. In fact, uh, for years I have responded to generous introductions like that by noting one I once received that ended, and now for the latest dope from Washington, here's E.J. Dion. <laughs> but everyone in this room and beyond has been so generous to me, has made me feel so at home here. Uh, the, the actual residency of this particular dope is now in doubt, and I want to thank you all uh, for making me feel so welcome. Uh, it is great to be back in my native Massachusetts. I'm a son of Fall River, uh, a little way south of here, uh, and I like being in a place where everyone knows what actually happened in Deflategate. Uh, and I always say that I loved Deflategate uh, because it taught me the joys of being a Fox News commentator. I did not care what the facts were. I just knew which side I was on. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a great honor to be offering this uh, lecture and a particular honor to be offering it to an audience that includes Drew Faust, the president of this uh, great university, and also David, the dean of the Divinity School. I'm grateful that I have had a chance to give this talk during President Faust's final year uh, because she has been an inspiring leader uh, for so many of us uh, and has contributed so much to this university. And she actually contributed uh, the inspiration, a part of the inspiration for this talk, as I will get to in a moment. Uh, she's sitting next to my dear friend Jim Kloppenberg, uh, and it is good to have him at the Divinity School because, as you may know, Jim has argued that St. Paul is actually the key to the democratic spirit, 
uh, he said democracies don't work unless we can see through one another's eyes and think through one another's minds. And that too is very much part of the talk I want to give here. Um, and in pondering what I wanted to say about David, uh, even before that excessively generous uh, introduction, um, I remembered what I said about a particularly warm and thoughtful uh, evangelical conservative friend. I said of him, he's a remarkable person. He's a Christian who behaves like a Christian. And as soon as I said that, I realized this is a rather devastating critique of the tradition of, that I have been part of uh, all my life. Uh, but whether that critique is fair or not, David is not only uh, a brilliant scholar, but someone who really does behave the way Christians like to see themselves behaving, above all in his profound generosity and warmth, uh, and in his work on behalf of peace and understanding, and in his openness and to an intellectual engagement with absolutely everyone. And it's just grateful to be part of this community. Um, it's worth remembering what this great scholar of Methodism said about John Wesley's opposition to slavery. David wrote, Christian movements have always been at their best when their agendas are about expanding human freedom, protecting the vulnerable, and fighting against injustice. We can all say aloud amen to that for our time and for every time, and it also has much bearing on what I have to say tonight. I want to thank my new colleagues at the Divinity School, many of whom I see here tonight and also at the Committee on Degrees in Social Studies and at the Kennedy School and the Shorenstein Center, uh, not only for making me feel at home, but also for opening my mind and broadening my understanding every day, and in many cases, for performing what might be called intellectual works of mercy by helping me teach my classes. And to everyone in this room who's come into my classroom, I want to say uh, thanks. Um, I'm grateful that Harvard has been so open to my lifelong um, fascination with the relationship between religion and politics, which goes back to having been raised in my dear hometown of Fall River, where the links among party, church, and union uh, were part of everyday life. And I'm happy to welcome my sister, Lucy Ann Dion Thomas, here tonight. Uh, she understands exactly what I am talking about. Um, as I try to note to my students here, it's always important for scholars of religion to be aware that the practical work of winning votes and elections, uh, uh, in this work, fine theological distinctions are often lost. Um, Reinhold Niebuhr tells the story of Al Smith confronting anti-Catholic prejudice in the 1928 presidential campaign. Um, and he had to answer for every papal encyclical ever issued. And Niebuhr says that at a meeting, a frustrated Smith turned to his aides and said, will somebody just tell me one thing? What the hell is an encyclical? <laughs> <laughs> and, the moral is that what we think is going on in the dialogue between religion and politics is not always what is actually uh, going on. And John F. Kennedy uh, thought in 1960 that he had proven that a Catholic could be elected once he won the West Virginia primary. Um, there was a fairly obvious religious test there. Hubert Humphrey, his main opponent, uh, subtly used the song, Give Me That Old Time Religion, as his campaign song against Kennedy. Um, and so Kennedy had put this aside, and then 
One day, the Vatican issues a statement suggesting that the church indeed had a right to instruct the faithful how to vote. And it opened up the controversy all over again. And Kennedy burst out, now I know why Henry VIII started his own church. <laughs> and I will not, I will stay out of the Henry VIII controversy this evening. And finally, there's Barack Obama, whose opponents claimed he was a Muslim when he was in fact a Christian. And then they later admitted he was a Christian, uh, but he found out during the controversy over comments made by his pastor, Jeremiah Wright, that they were saying, well, if Obama is indeed a Christian, uh, he is a, was a Christian that, in their view, a, a Christian of a very defective sort. Um, and so Obama couldn't win either way. And I've always thought that in his struggles with both race and religion, his hero must have been Job. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, when I was asked to give the Lentz Lecture, uh, Karen Grunder Whitaker provided me with a wealth of information including pictures of a lot of old Harvard seals. Um, and thank you, Karen. Where, where are you, Karen? Thank you for so many, uh, there you are. Thank you for so many uh, kindnesses and for much good advice. Her research only sent me Googling for more information on this uh, uh, lecture. Um, as uh, the dean explained, uh, Christo et Ecclesia is the theme. I came across a Harvard Crimson article published in uh, April 26, 1921, uh, saying that it was first used uh, by the Dutch, uh, and the original words, as David suggested, were veritas Christo et ecclesiae, meaning truth for Christ and the church. Now, more conservative Christian critics of Harvard have noted over the years um, that we lifted up veritas and dropped Christo and ecclesiae, Christ and the church. Uh, this might be uh, the cause uh, for uh, some debate. Uh, Professor Noah Fellman of the law school was in my class the other day, um, and uh, he said that uh, the Divinity School owes its very existence to Harvard's uh, decision to put some distance between theological concerns and the broader, broader uh, college and later um, the university. Actually, Noah, if you know him, uh, is irrepressible. And he said, this decision by Harvard was meant to send two messages. One, that theology really mattered to Harvard. And two, that theology really didn't matter to Harvard. Um, given the diversity of religious and philosophical views represented on this campus in our country and in the world, um, the move to pure and simple veritas can be defended as a, a, an embrace of pluralism. Um, and these days, insisting that truth exists is a rather radical act. Uh, but it's also quite consistent with the Christian scripture that taught us that the truth will make you free. Uh, the implication is that truth is enough all by itself. And that the goal of Christians, the pursuit of truth, wherever it leads us and however uncomfortable it might make us feel, is an objective that can be shared across the lines of faith and by those who are skeptical of religion altogether. I'd like to hope that Mr. Lentz might agree with that. Uh, he was active in politics, I learned in my uh, research, uh, so I'd also like to hope that he'd think that right about now, we need a lot more veritas in our politics and a lot less of the alternative. Um, I've always admired the call uh, put forward by the philosopher Glenn Tinder to build what he called an attentive society a place, as he wrote, that honors strong conviction 
but where everyone acknowledges the need both to give and to receive help on the road to truth. Again, we very much need to rediscover that spirit uh, in our country, and I'm blessed to be here uh, at the Divinity School because it is a place where people give and receive help, and where people work in David Hollinger's wonderful phrase, in intellectual solidarity. Um, intellectual solidarity, I think, should be the goal of all great universities, a point that President Faust has made over and over again. Uh, like many here, I will deeply miss her. Uh, as I said, I'm greatly uh, grateful for all she's done for Harvard, uh, but I have a particular debt tonight for the morning prayer she offered at Memorial Church uh, at the beginning of this uh, term, uh, because it helped me clarify what I wanted to discuss. Um, she gave as good a definition of the purpose of this in any institution of higher learning when she said, we believe in the pursuit of truth as our common purpose. We believe in the power of learning and discovery to enhance human capacity and in our responsibility to develop that capacity to serve the world. We believe in the value of every member of this community and in each person's potential to contribute to the common good. Drew, you should come teach at the Divinity School in your next uh, job. Uh, universities must be open places uh, where our goal, as she put it, is to enrich, to educate, and to challenge one another. But pursuing the truth does not mean being neutral or detached in the face of hatred. Hatred, after all, is inimical to intellectual solidarity that the pursuit of truth requires. President Faust thus called out what happened this summer in Charlottesville, condemning, as she put it, the loathsome demonstrations of hatred and violence, reviving the most shameful episodes of the past, and foregrounding the very worst of what we have seen been and regrettably still are as a nation. Now her comments go to the heart of what I want to talk about. My sense is, in a sense, an invitation to all of you to help uh, in a work that I think is essential at this moment in our country's history. It is to try to work out what I see as a deep tension between two objectives we must pursue simultaneously at this very difficult time. <clears throat> On the one hand, how can we fight for justice, inclusion, equality, openness, liberal democracy, and the importance of truth itself without any equivocation and without fear? All of these ideas and values are under attack now, and we must not shrink from the responsibility to battle uh, that the battle to defend them imposes on us. <clears throat> Pardon me. How can we insist that there can be no compromise with discrimination, bigotry, or hatred, and no letting up in the battle to push back against autocracy, authoritarianism, and lawlessness? How can we seek to follow Martin Luther King Jr., who drew on the prophet Amos, to declare that our objective should be to hasten the time when justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream? But if this is one obligation of our, our current crisis imposes on us, there is another that requires a very different way of thinking and demands the mustering of different political and intellectual resources. A case can be made, and I think it's a compelling case, that our nation is as deeply divided as it has been at any time since the 1850s, a period uh, President Faust has explored throughout her career. Now, I am reluctant to make this comparison because the 1850s culminated in a civil war. Uh, but it's been said that we are in the middle right now of a cold civil war, 
And however you might feel about that observation, it is certainly too close to the truth for our comfort. Uh, Doug Elmendorf, and I'm very glad to see you today, and also your wonderful daughter. It's so nice of you to come this evening. Doug, the dean of the Divinity School, who I thank this evening, uh, uh, Divinity School, I'm, I'm trying to sacralize you, the dean of the Kennedy School, thank you. Um, the, um, the, the sacred dean of the Kennedy School. Um, uh, and I know also as we, we our kids attended uh, the same high school, and remember him from many uh, um, back-to-school nights. Um, he confronted the discord I'm talking about at last year's campaign managers conference. Uh, over the years, that conference has made an enormous contribution to our understanding of politics. I finally have to admit that I am getting a little older because as an undergrad, I was involved in organizing the first such conference after the 1972 election. But however divisive the confrontation between George McGovern and Richard Nixon was, it did not require a Kennedy School dean to, what, to do what Doug had to do in a thoughtful statement in which he made clear that inviting certain speakers did not mean endorsing or legitimizing their views. Nor, he said, did it mean that we are unsure of our values. Doug was moved to quote Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes' declaration that the ultimate good desired is better reached by free trade in ideas. Now, Doug's plea for reasoned dialogue should be saluted, and it was certainly needed this year. The conference that followed those remarks was the most contentious in the 44-year history of these encounters. So this illustrates the second obligation I want to talk about. How can we bring together a nation that is being torn apart? How can we repair the social and political fabric of a land in which people across lines of region, party, class, and race seem incapable of understanding each other and often appear to loathe uh, each other? How can we promote empathy across our lines of division so that it becomes possible to identify simultaneously with Afri African Americans and immigrants struggling against a rising tide of racism and nativism, while also identifying with white working class Americans struggling with devastated living standards and shattered communities. And in the process, how can we acknowledge that a working class that is now getting a great deal of rhetorical attention, but not much real help, um, is uh, in large part African-American, Latino, and Asian, and not just white. It is a truth that the great scholar uh, here at Harvard, William Julius Wilson, pointed us to many years ago in his path-breaking work on the costs of deindustrialization. Thus the tension I am referring to in the title of the talk, How Can We Fight for Justice While Maintaining Open Hearts? I ask you to join in the work of grappling with this tension, both because uh, it is, as I see it, one of the most important questions before us, and also because I can only hope here uh, to begin what needs to be a serious and ongoing effort uh, at discernment leading to considered but urgent action. I told David uh, when I was talking about the subject of this speech that I propose to ask an unanswerable question and then we'll try to answer it. Uh, and that's what I'm doing here tonight. I'm gonna to turn to a variety of sources, um, but we'll come back often uh, to Martin Luther King Jr. because very few leaders engage this dilemma more effectively or productively 
And I am very intimidated that I am staring at one of the greatest scholars of Prof uh, Dr. King's work uh, right in front of me. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Um, I'll, I'll, let, me, let me start with one way to pose the question, which is how can we call out evil, injustice, and danger without assuming that all of those with whom we disagree are themselves inherently evil or dangerous? This, I think, requires faith in the power of conversion of ourselves as well as others. The late Jerry Watts, an important scholar of the civil rights movement of the 1960s, reminded us of why that great undertaking was and remains morally inspiring. Quotes, we can easily forget or underestimate the significance of the moral persuasiveness of the normative vision generated within the movement, Watts wrote. Whites were led to believe that they should act on behalf of black civil rights, and blacks were led to believe that there were sufficient numbers of white Americans of goodwill who wanted to see the racial reality altered. And because the movement was situated within a Christian moral discourse, the movement rhetorically reinforced the possibility of moral, political the moral and political conversion of its adversaries. We thus need to renew our faith in the power of conversion, which is rooted uh, in more than just our conviction that we are upholding values and principles that are worthy of embrace, uh, that we are really preaching good news. Conversion also entails attentive listening to those with whom we disagree and empathetic understandings of the situations in which our interlocutors find themselves. It also means finding common sources of inspiration, something Martin Luther King understood when he appealed to the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and also to the scriptures and particularly the Exodus story. King insisted, after all, that his dream was deeply rooted in the American dream. At the Great March on Washington, he went out of his way to express solidarity with our white brothers who by their presence here today have come to realize that their destiny is tied up with our destiny. They have come to realize that their freedom is inextricably bound with our freedom. But he did this without backing off from the fierce urgency of now, and he warned against dependency on the tranquilizing drug of gradualism. For King, conversion and militancy were not in conflict. They were part of the same project. Another approach is to ask how we can be righteous without being self-righteous. Uh, Reinhold Niebuhr uh, put the challenge this way. The final enigma of history, he wrote, is therefore not how the righteous will gain victory over the unrighteous, but how the evil in every good and the unrighteous in the righteous can be overcome. Yes, even those who th of us who think we are righteous need to, argue, uh, need to acknowledge the limits of our own vision and the ways in which we can sometimes deceive ourselves. We need to ask if, in serving what we see as our values, we might, in fact, merely be serving our interests. And even if we are persuaded that we are, in fact, serving the good, we still need to remember that even the best of us always operate from complicated motives. Thus, one of my favorite Niebuhrisms, we must always seek the truth in our opponent's error and the error in our own truth. Note carefully what Niebuhr is saying here. He is not saying we need to abandon our convictions or our commitments. 
um, we can see ourselves as speaking the truth, and we can insist that our opponent is in error. But we can do so in a way that searches for the elements of truth in our foe's arguments. Again, doing this can be seen as part of the conversion process, while also acknowledging that our own commitments often carry elements of self-interest that we don't wish to acknowledge, and an arrogance that is both a barrier to communication and a direct contradiction to our claimed egalitarianism. This is the Niborian imperative uh, to understand the obligation to act in the world forcefully and without hesitation, while always being mindful of our own imperfections and our will to power. Niebuhr's famous description of the purpose of politics reflects these twin duties. To establish justice in a sinful world is the whole sad duty of the political order. Lastly, my friend Kathy Cavaney of Boston College, whom we are blessed to have, us, have with us tonight, offered a brilliant formulation of the problem we face in the title of her recent book, Prophecy Without Contempt. Think about that wonderful idea, prophecy without contempt. We badly need prophecy right now. Uh, we don't need and must resolutely avoid contempt toward our brothers and sisters, our fellow citizens, even when we think they are very wrong. Uh, religion's most powerful uh, public role, she argues, involves prophetic indictment of our shortcomings. And she holds up Dr. King and Abraham Lincoln as models of this work. Kathy makes her point powerfully by noting how changing one letter in a word can make an enormous moral difference. <clears throat> the word condemn, with a D, means to pronounce an adverse judgment on to express strong disapproval of. That is the job of the prophet. Lincoln condemned slavery, and he was right to do so. Dr. King condemned segregation, discrimination, and economic injustice, and he was right to do so. But there was another side to Lincoln and King, and Kaveny underscores this by contrasting the word condemn with a D to the root word of contempt, which is contemn with a T. Uh, this involves holding or treating others, quotes, as of little account, or as vile and worthless, as unimportant or of small value. As Kaveny argues, to treat one's political interlocutors as vile or worthless is to risk undermining their equal status as participants in our political community. It is to treat them as unworthy of citizenship, as people who must be pruned from our common endeavor. Uh, Kaveny also sees King and Lincoln as models because well, they, as they called out evil, they maintained a lively sense of humility. Imagine preaching humility at Harvard University. Uh, they understood the limits of their own knowledge and acknowledged their own moral shortcomings. They displayed, as she put it, social humility regarding the status of other peoples, including one's enemies and God's affections. In other words, they didn't consign their foes to hell. Um, each of these closely related approaches suggests, suggests how we might begin the task of condemning evil without deepening our divisions. To remember with Jerry Watts the power of conversion, which requires imaginative engagement with the concerns of others. To remember with Reinhold Niebuhr the importance of seeing our own imperfections and short-sightedness. And to remember with Kathy Kaveny that we cannot build a stronger democracy 
if we treat our opponents as unworthy of a common citizenship. But what of our obligations to fight injustice? I worried as I was writing this talk uh, that I would begin to sound like that telling parody of the liberal who is someone so open-minded that he can't even take his own side in an argument. Um, it's easy uh, to preach the merits of civility from the comfort of affluence. And to put an even finer point on the matter, one can imagine critics fairly pointing out that it is easy for someone who is white and male and straight and native-born to miss the urgency of this moment, uh, to play up the need for understanding over the imperative of opposition and resistance to daily injustices. They would argue for the role of dissidents and rebels and prophets. Abraham Joshua Heschel, one of King's great allies who marched with him in Selma, said the prophets saw God not as comfort and security, but as a challenge, an incessant demand. Heschel wrote, while others are callous, and even callous to their callousness, and unaware of their insensitivity, the prophets remain examples of supreme impatience with evil, distracted by neither might nor applause, by neither success nor beauty. Their, insist their intense sensitivity to right and wrong is due to their intense sensitivity to God's concern for right and wrong. They feel fiercely because they hear deeply. We cannot allow a desire to understand and persuade to become an excuse for not feeling fiercely or hearing deeply. Similarly, Dr. King was profoundly impatient with those who criticized his militancy and saw his movement's demonstrations in Birmingham as, as they put it in a letter to him, unwise and untimely. Uh, King uh, wrote back very harshly in his letter from Birmingham jail. You deplore the demonstrations taking place in Birmingham, but your statement, I am sorry to say, fails to express a similar concern for the conditions that brought about the demonstrations. Lamentably, it is a historical fact that privileged groups seldom give up their privileges voluntarily. Individuals may see the moral light and voluntarily give up their unjust posture, but as Reinhold Niebuhr has reminded us, King went on, groups tend to be more immoral than individuals. It is easy, King added, for those who have never felt the stinging darts of segregation to say, wait. Uh, oppressed people, he declared, cannot remain oppressed forever. Thus did a man resolutely committed to dialogue and nonviolence and conversion nonetheless insist that there were times when militancy is essential, when cooling off periods only chill the struggle for justice, when it is a mistake to heed calls for civility over the cries for relief from oppression. So where does this leave us in our quest to fight injustice in ways that might leave us more rather than less united when the struggle is over and God willing ends in success? <coughs> Let's stipulate following the king of Birmingham jail and invoking President Faust's words again, that there should be no backing off from strenuous and unbending opposition to the loathsome demonstrations of hate, hatred and violence. There is uh, so much we need to argue about in politics, openly, civilly, and respectfully. 
but racism and sexism and nativism and homophobia are unacceptable always and everywhere. But so too are prejudices related to class. We must oppose the bigotry of skin color, but we also must oppose the bigotry that denies the wisdom and virtue of those who lack college degrees or large bank accounts. We once celebrated the honor and dignity of manual work of those in the healthcare sector who do not carry the title doctor and of those in the service industry who are not high-tech wizards. We must do so again, yes, through policies that reward hard work that is currently underpaid, but also through a clear national affirmation of the equal dignity of every one of God's children. Some of the ballots ca cast last year for a candidate who spoke in reprehensible terms about our citizens of color, uh, particularly immigrants, were motivated uh, by their own sense of exclusion from a belief that their fellow citizens in our great universities, our cultural institutions, <clears throat> and our prosperous metropolitan areas lacked respect for who they are what they do, and what they believe. It is essential to the battle of, for social justice that we join together to fight a politics that casts one group's pain against another group's pain. We must heal the overt injuries of race and gender prejudice, but we must also heal the often hidden injuries of class. At the same time, in our quest for mutual understanding, we should not give in to the temptation of a false balance that pretends that both sides are equally guilty of polarizing our national conversation. There is a moral difference between those who exploit prejudice and those who do not. There is a moral difference between the anger of those who suffer and the smug indifference of those who benefit from an existing status quo. Indifference can seem like civility, because smugness doesn't need to raise its voice. It is, it is satisfied with things exactly as they are. A false equivalent seeks to locate the person embracing it in some metaphysically perfect paradise of moderation as he calls out the extremes to either side of him. But the two sides are not always equally extreme, and I would certainly assert that this is true today. Dr. King, for one, took great offense as seeing his nonviolent movement for justice labeled extreme by moderate clergy who sought to distance themselves from his struggle. The rhetorical power of King's rebuke to them in his Birmingham letter should remind us of the need to ponder carefully what we are saying when we use the word extreme. Was Jesus Christ uh, an extreme? Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them uh, which dis uh, despite, despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? And Abraham Lincoln, the nation cannot survive half slave and half free. And Thomas Jefferson, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. So the question is not whether we will be extremists, but what kind of extremists we will be, King wrote. Will we be extremists for hate or for love? Will we be extremists for the preservation of injustice or for the extension of justice? These are fair questions in his time and any time. If moderation in politics can sometimes be an evasion then, 
It can also be an admirable personal virtue, and we need discernment to understand when it applies and when it is falling into the sins that Martin Luther King described. If moderation is simply splitting differences with no regards to outcome, no regard for outcomes and no regard for justice, or as in King's example, to the actual content of the two opposing positions, it is no moral guide at all. But moderation is powerfully useful if it involves in Niburian fashion checks on our own self-interested passions or on our arrogance or on our tendency to demonize not only actual demons, and yes, they are out there, uh, but absolutely anyone who takes a different view from our own. I want to close by asking why even bother to engage in the circle squaring that I have undertaken tonight between the need for militancy and even resistance and the imperative of healing our divisions. When I described what I intended to do in this talk, a friend said that I was proposing that people needed to be loving fighters. Uh, she was kind in saying that she liked the idea, but it also sounded like a contradiction in terms or perhaps the name of a failed rock band. Um, but I see no other way. We need to take on not only prejudice and division, but also tendencies toward autocracy and authoritarianism, visible in efforts to sow confusion about the truth, demonize the free press, attack an independent judiciary, delegitimize and threaten to jail political opponents, and undermine lawful inquiries into a leader's possible abuses. Vigilance against these things is not alarmism. This is a time that requires friends of freedom to speak up. Yet as we fight the daily battles, we must remember that our purpose is to assert the existence of a common good. And the common good cannot even be defined, let alone achieved, in a society racked by deep division, mistrust, and mutual recrimination. In a way, our side needs unity even more than the other side does. The great reforming movements in our nation's history were brought about through a combination of struggle and community building. Dr. King described his goal not as the domination of one group over another, he was fighting domination. He spoke of creating a beloved community where all would sit together at the table of brotherhood. This still must be our purpose. When my friends uh, Norm Ornstein, Tom Mann, and I were writing our recently published book that David kindly mentioned, we had long conversations about what we should call it. And we set, when we settled on one nation after Trump, we realized that we owed a debt to the Pledge of Allegiance. Now, it's lost in the mists of history that the pledge was written in 1892 by a progressive, actually a Christian socialist minister named Francis Bellamy. But when you think about the last seven words of the pledge, and recall that God was not added until 1954, but when you think about the last seven words of the pledge, this is less surprising. We commit ourselves when we recite it to one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Notice that the idea that we are indivisible is intimately related to our commitment to liberty and justice for all. Healing our country requires that we rededicate ourselves to the hope that we can overcome our divisions 
because this is finally the only path to achieving liberty and justice for all. Thank you very much. Bless you all. Thank you so much. And I think is there there's a Q and A here where uh, where I uh, place uh, searing questions, a critique of my King scholarship, please, uh, <laughs> or a critique of my Niebuhr scholarship. We also have America's expert on Niebuhr sitting in this audience, who will help teach my class. Thank you very much. So if you could wait until the Sometimes I worry that a lot of my answers have question marks at the end of them. <laughs> oh, he, uh, the president of the Reinhold Niebuhr Society. True. <laughs> Thank you so much. That was fascinating. Um, one of the questions that I have been thinking a lot about recently actually comes out of the, um, a newspaper article that appeared, I think, in the New York Times that talked about um, Trump's presidency is the death of humility. Um, and I was really taken with um, your emphasis in this talk on moderation. But I'd be very curious to know how you understand the place of humility in our current political culture, um, in, um, in other aspects of our lives. Like, how do you think about the kind of revolution that might need to happen um, in this cultural moment to turn our political conversation in new directions? Thank you. Uh, thank you for that question. I mean, there really is not a lot of return to you, uh, to those who engage in humility right now. Um, and there is, um, you can argue that we have a profoundly anti-humble culture, uh, that, that people are encouraged uh, to brag, never to admit error, always to say that the product they are selling is the best because anything short of that uh, will be seen as an admission of a fault. Um, and with President Trump, obviously we are off the charts in someone uh, for whom clearly that word is uh, unknown. I'm not sh fully sure he knows its definition. Um, and, and it's very disconcerting. I would, however, note, I can't resist noting uh, that certain, there were certain elections around the country on Tuesday uh, that suggested something I think very important about a pushback against not only his policies, but also a whole way of engaging um, a presidency. Um, what's interesting is that so many successful public figures in the past did channel humility. I mean, John F. Kennedy was someone who was deeply sure of himself. This is not, was not a man who lacked self-confidence. Um, but I don't think any, anybody was more masterly at kind of self-deprecating humor and at least conveying a sense to you, fellow citizen, uh, that he understood uh, that he was not a perfect uh, person. Lincoln uh, was extraordinary in being someone who uh, expressed humility. The whole second inaugural address uh, here's a guy who just won this enormous conflict. The South is about to surrender. Uh, and instead of 
speaking grandly about, uh, you know, we're winning every day, um, or, the, you know, uh, for example. Um, the, um, uh, he is someone who said that God's judgment falls on, uh, equally against both sides, even though he was also uncompromising uh, about slavery. Um, so I think in Trump, there is a particular interlude that's just very peculiar. This is a very peculiar experience. And as I say, what happened on Tuesday is not the, um, it's, it's not the end, but it's the end of the beginning. Uh, and something, I think something important changed yesterday, uh, or on Tuesday. Um, but I think in the broader culture, um, the, it's, it's, in writing this talk, I struggled with that question personally, uh, because either when you defend humility, you either sound insincere, who is a columnist and pundit to claim humility, uh, and that's a problem, uh, or you sound like you lack conviction, uh, or you sound like some kind of wimp, which is also not a popular thing uh, to be. Um, and so I guess the answer is we need to hold up strong examples of humility, which is why I like to cite uh, Lincoln, I like to cite Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy had uh, his share of it. There have been, I think the, the argument we need to make is the greatest leaders, the greatest leaders, not necessarily successful leaders, not all successful leaders, but the greatest leaders had a sense of their own uh, limitations, a sense of their own, if you will, sinfulness, uh, and a sense of the ambiguity of even good projects. And I know that those last words appeal greatly to one of the country's greatest scholars, Reinhold Niebuhr, because that's what he taught us uh, all the time. Um, ah, Jim, thank you. I'm going to preface this question by saying that it comes from reading a recent issue of Daedalus about the idea of deliberative democracy. Because if I were to ask you to get practical, as somebody who studies political theory, it would seem pretty rich. So uh, this oh, is something ahead. that comes out of, a, comes out of <laughs> uh, immersion in the, the difficulties that people who study deliber deliberative democracy have found in the attempt to practice it. And so when you talk about the need for conversion and the need for humility, I'm persuaded, although those are in tension with each other, right? Because if we're going to convert, we assume we have something to convert people to, which requires us to have a certain kind of self-confidence. So you're aware of this tension. But I, I just, can I just say one thing? I, 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 I do not believe that humility is an antonym to self-confidence. On the contrary, I think I would want to make an argument um, that only a, you know, a genuinely confident person can have the humility to acknowledge uh, imperfection. Uh, and so I would take it as a sign of confidence. I'd like humility to be a strong virtue in that sense, not a weak virtue. Okay, um, and so, yeah, go ahead. Okay, so the question I want to ask is actually quite a simple question. Can you give us an example or two of situations in which people who are as different from each other, who disagree with each other as profoundly as so many of us do um, with people on the other side of the political spectrum, have been able to come together. Because the, the problem with the effort for deliberative democracy is that the, the power imbalances the, 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 the situations in which different people 
uh, find themselves when they come into these deliberative uh, meetings, in some ways poison them from the start. And so what I'd like to have you do is give us some illustrations of how you think the virtues, and I think they are real virtues of democracy that you're describing to us, have been shown to work. Well, I, in a way, I, I partly I think you're, if I take your question correctly, where debate um, uh, led to conversion, or led either conversion or convergence. Um, one of my favorite examples involves Barney Frank, uh, not necessarily always seen as a humble uh, person, Barney, although I love Barney. Um, he, he once said that uh, moderate Republicans are always there when you don't need them. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and relevant to this, he said, uh, my opponents believe that life begins at conception and ends at birth. And that very line that Barney used to use um, was actually effective uh, in the context of a debate that Barney Frank and Henry Hyde would often have set-piece debates uh, about abortion. And uh, Barney would make his point uh, that if you care about uh, life, uh, if you want moms to bring kids into the world, uh, what are you going to do about WIC, you know, with the Women's Infants and Children program? What are you going to do about food stamps? What are you going to do about all the programs we have that actually help mothers who bring children into the world? And after one of these debates, Henry Hyde stood up and said, Barney Frank is right. I am going to change my votes on a, on a series of issues. And he did change his votes on these issues. Now, Barney was at times very harsh in his debating style, but in a way you could argue that he entered imaginatively into the, um, the mind and heart of Henry Hyde and his other opponents, his opponents on the other side of this very difficult issue, um, and persuaded them that if they wanted to be consistent uh, with, their, uh, with themselves, they really could not continue to hold a position opposed to abortion and then vote down all these programs. It's a, someone I trust will say that in a debate over this tax bill about a party that claims to be pro-life and repeals the adoption tax credit uh, as part of a tax reform to cut corporate taxes. So that's, that is one example I can think of. I think you saw a lot of conversion around the climate issue uh, and then a snapback. Uh, I think if you look at the um, early 2000s, um, you actually had Republicans like John, it's the two that come to mind, and it's not because of what they've done recently, but it's where they were at the time. Republicans like John McCain and Bob Corker both acknowledge that yes, uh, climate change is, has a human cause and we have to do something about it, and McCain introduced a bill with Joe Lieberman. Um, Corker was talking about carbon taxes. Now, he, he didn't want a ca complicated cap and trade thing because he was a kind of free market person, but he said, yes, carbon taxes could be market friendly. Now, since then, you've had a kind of retrenchment in the Republican Party on this issue as um, you know, the power of the extractive industries in that party is extraordinary. Uh, and it's become not a matter of science, but a, a, a matter uh, a, a strange, in a way, matter for ideology. Um, but I think climate is an area where, um, you know, a, is something that a lot of people found difficult to believe at the beginning, um, uh, became persuasive to large numbers of people, including uh, people on the other side. And lastly, civil rights. Um, I mean, I, I think 
that if you look, um, you know, in the Selma movie, um, in a way, one of my favorite scenes was the when they showed the violence in the South against the civil rights demonstrators, and they showed living rooms in which white people were looking at these pictures. And something happened there where the people at the other end of these uh, pictures said, this is wrong, something is wrong here. Uh, in a few cases, they bravely went south and risked their lives. Uh, in a lot of cases, it was just a quiet change of mind. It was, this situation cannot uh, continue uh, anymore. Um, and to ignore, you know, we have so much more progress to make, we have so many problems in this sphere, yet to ignore how radical the change in our country was uh, from 1954 uh, to 1970 or 1968 um, is to ignore one of the great changes of heart in uh, the country. And even if one argues that the change wasn't fundamental enough, that people still certainly harbored some racist feelings, Nonetheless, that was an extraordinary uh, conversion, and I really do believe that it was the power of a movement um, that found um, arguments within our Constitution, within our Declaration of Independence, and within shared scripture uh, that helped bring about change. So it was really, I think, militancy uh, combined with a genuine effort to reach hearts. Uh, Kathy. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, there's one right behind you. First, thank you so much for reading my book. I'm going to tell my mother the minute I get home. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great book. It's an important book. <laughs> uh, I, I just we're talking about entering into the minds and hearts of other people, and I'd like to ask you to conjoin your uh, experience and expertise as a journalist with your reading in political theory and, and sociology and, and divinity and say, how do you do that in 140 characters, or what now, 200? 280, now 280. it's easy, we got twice as many. But, <laughs> but th that's true, but has something fundamentally shifted, you know, with uh, Trump being the Twitter president, with, with the whole shift not only to the blogosphere but incre increasingly to the Twitter feed that makes the kind of conversations we need to have even more difficult? And, and how would you assess this, thinking about your experience as a journalist who's gone from print media, television, and now the Twitterverse? I mean, yeah, the first piece of it is one of the great things about being a journalist is you can talk to anybody, anywhere. You have an excuse to ask anyone anything, which is probably why I met my wife on the subway in Washington, D.C., uh, because I started talking to her and asking her questions on the subway. Um, but this allows you to enter, yeah, it's true. In, in fact, I, uh, I, I always like to say my favorite sentence, actually, I acknowledge Mary in one of the books, and I said I could thank her for a lot of things, but instead I'll thank the designers of the DC Metro system, where I met her one Easter Sunday afternoon. And then the last line proves I really am some kind of big government liberal. The last line is, never has anyone owed more to an agency of government. Uh, <laughs> um, but with, you know, as a journalist, um, now this is less true than it used to be, but as a journalist, you could walk into 
uh, town in West Virginia or Eastern Kentucky uh, or an African-American neighborhood in the inner city or anywhere you wanted to, and you had a certain standing to be the agent through whom people could tell their stories. And so you could learn a lot about people, about a neighborhood, about wh what concerns uh, people have. And uh, stories of that sort did not work if they were not, in some deep sense, empathetic. Um, I remember there's a neighborhood in Brooklyn called Bay Ridge that I was writing about that is predominantly, uh, was then predominantly Irish and Italian. And I said, oh, this is, um, you know, you're like uh, Saturday Night Fever. And uh, he said very offendedly, no, those people live in Bensonhoist. And, um, <laughs> but I learned that that was actually instructive uh, about the attitude toward. Um, and, you know, I think that there have been historically so many great journalists who allowed people to see other lives. Michael Harrington's great book, The Other America, uh, which sort of taught a lot of Americans that we have a whole lot of poor people in the country that you are paying no attention to at all. And through a review in The New Yorker, it reached John F. Kennedy and helped lead to the war on poverty. So empathy is possible, and journalism, at least in part, ought to be an, an exercise, parts of what we do ought to be an, uh, an exercise in empathy, particularly as people who are not privileged are concerned. Uh, that we really have to try to give voice um, to this. And many of my colleagues who do that kind of work uh, in neighborhoods and communities around the country, I think, are doing God's work in this, uh, in this sphere. Now, does our new world make this impossible? Well, <clears throat> we have a lot of things pulling us apart. Um, you know, Bill Bishop's book, The Big Sort. We don't even live near... Uh, people who disagree with us. Now, we've always had various forms of segregation uh, in America, racially, racial segregation, certainly. Um, but the evidence is that we now have those old forms of segregation compounded by new forms of what you might call intellectual or moral um, segregation. Uh, Bill Bishop, the guy who wrote The Big Sort, uh, discovered that um, you know the number of counties in America that were going by landslides to one side or the other, even in close elections, just had increased exponentially. Um, in our neighborhood in Bethesda, Maryland, I told our kids once, I really admire people who put up Republican signs because it took a lot of guts in our 80-plus percent for Obama neighborhood to put up signs uh, for McCain or Romney. Similarly, just 30 miles away in parts of Prince William County, Virginia, 80% um, of the signs uh, would be for McCain or Romney, and it would take guts to put up an Obama sign. Um, so we are, even before you get to new media, we are more separating each other. And with our, within our religious congregations, and we've talked about this, um, there, the political divisions are even greater uh, than they used to be. Again, there's always been some of this. I'm not a, I don't romanticize the past, but I think there's evidence that this is worse. Now the technology kind of reinforces that. Um, and I also think there's a distance and coldness uh, to the technology. People, I think, say meaner things um, because they are um, almost by definition ill-considered. Um, people often respond um, in a very quick uh, fashion without thinking real hard about uh, what they are, uh, what they are uh, sending out. And people tend to follow 
um, you know, the, the way Facebook works, sending you stuff you agree with, your friends send you stuff you agree with. If Bill Bishop is right, you have fewer friends who disagree with you. Um, and now things are so bad that even family members who disagree don't even want to talk about politics uh, anymore. We grew up in a very raucous family where every family gathering was a raucous political argument, an extended family uh, gathering. Um, and now people are even afraid to do that. So it is, all of that is, um, is very troubling. Um, but I, I still am not convinced it's technological. I'm still, and, and you know, obviously news media, Fox News is a rather special thing, as I noted earlier. Um, but I, I still think the division pre-existed. Pre I think the causal arrow goes more from our, the ideological and philosophical division to the media than the other way around. The media just aggravates it. The, media may, the new technology makes everything more efficient, including our hatred for each other. Uh, but I think there are other reasons for that hatred. And so therefore, we're going to try to heal it in other ways. Please, ma'am. You smiled reassuringly at certain points, and I want to thank you for that. <laughs> I'm Connie Williams. I'm married to Preston here. So, uh, my question is about uh, the use of language in trying to uh, bring sides together. And I'll just give a couple of examples. Um, I was so happy when you uh, made the observation that there are some black working class people in this country. <laughs> you would like think. quite a lot. <laughs> yeah, yes, and, and, and I, I keep thinking, well, I haven't, I haven't see, seen Steve Kornacki break it down for me as to how many working class black people voted you know, for anybody. Or, uh, and just the use of the term white working class exclusively, I think has been extremely divisive and, of course, totally inaccurate. And I wonder how in our conversations and trying to bring people together, uh, we can correct some of that. And then one, one other language use that has bothered me since I was a child growing up in West Virginia and, and listening to uh, people campaign uh, all over the country is, is that we are a nation of immigrants. That's partly true. We are a nation of immigrants, but nobody ever says in a political campaign, we are a nation of descendants of slaves, Native Americans, and immigrants. And that's a more accurate statement. And, but we, ne we never hear, hear that in our conversation. And I'd just like uh, some comment about that. No, I thank you on both of those. Um, on the, the, the whole working class issue, um, the, my, my uh, dissertation, by the way, was on uh, white working class racial attitudes of Britain and the United States. Uh, and so it's something, uh, and, and how it's sort of from the 50s to Thatcher and the 50s to Reagan. Um, and so I've struggled with this question for a long time because um, it, it is... And it's something that when we wrote our book, we talked a lot about because there is something fundamentally wrong with losing everybody else in the working class except for white people. Uh, and you know that it, by some measures, 
um, you know, you, you might get close to a majority of the working class who aren't white. Uh, second, that we, we have a problem with that term now in any event, because usually when people use that, they're using a poll-determined category that is non-college whites, uh, whites who didn't go to college. Why is that? Well, because we don't have as many classic working class jobs anymore. We don't have as many auto or steel or coal mining jobs or textile jobs as we used to have. So it is, in a way, already, to begin with, this kind of artificial um, construct. I think that it is correct to focus some attention on less advantaged whites, whether you, and that maybe in some ways that's a more appropriate term, um, because I think there are some deeper than ever divisions along class lines within the white community. And I think we've got to face those and be explicit about what we need to do about it as a society. But I always now have gotten in the habit of pointing out that the working class is multiracial because it's, it's so misleading in the way you talk about it. And, um, you know, if you really want to um, sort of think about how uh, a racist would look at it, that a racist would uh, deny um, you know, that black people could be working class, and you don't want to do anything to contribute uh, to that kind of view. Um, second thing is, I think that we do need to remember that uh, fighting economic injustice and racial injustice went hand in hand in the civil rights struggle. I've been talking a lot about, and I, I actually tried to find it for, David kindly lent me his office, and there's some space there, and I wanted to put up a poster or something. And what I tried to find, which I wasn't able to find, was a poster from the 63 Civil Rights March, because it's been on my mind a lot because of this question. Because as you remember, uh, or might remember, you're too young to remember, um, the uh, slogan of that march was jobs and freedom. Uh, the, one of the biggest funders of that march was the United Auto Workers Union, uh, and that Jobs and Freedom says that we've got to talk about economic justice and we've got to talk about racial justice. Uh, and Martin Luther King himself died after speaking in a labor strike. So we need to find ways of talking about this um, uh, in a different way that bring people back together across these lines. And, and we've done it at some moments. Bobby Kennedy did it at certain moments. Um, you know, toward the end, and we never got to see how that was going to turn out. Um, but we, you know, as I said, the, the you know, we, it's a terrible politics that, um, you know, I think that the president uses of really holding one group's pain against another group's pain, and that's what we got to fight against. Um, there was a, I want, the, yeah, no, I, you're right about that. I, I, I'm going to think, I'm going to just take that away uh, and and um, I, I, you know, maybe I think maybe I can pledge never to use the word that phrase "nation of immigrants" again without qualification because it's true, um, and I don't think most people who use it intend it that way. But they are forgetting something very important. So, thank you. I want to make a. I want to make a. I want to make a comment about the uh, white working class. One of the things that is being pointed out by a number of people 
is that that white working class rose to their position of comfortableness in the society by an affirmative action program for them. Uh, when you had the FDR uh, legislation, uh, when you had the GI Bill, et cetera, uh, you had in the law, especially in housing, an exclusion of African Americans from the uh, programs. You had redlining, et cetera. And uh, what, in a sense, is uh, happening uh, to them uh, is that they are um, becoming uh, more an average person and not a person uh, favored uh, by the uh, government uh, in the way that the government did during the FDR period, et cetera. Well, let me tell you how much I agree with that. Um, there are little things in your life that you are proud of, you know, just small things. And uh, as you know, and you might be referencing him, Ira Katz Nelson, uh, the great scholar, wrote very much, wrote a book about the exclusion of um, uh, African Americans from a lot of the New Deal programs. And he and I ran into each other at a political science meeting. Uh, and he was describing the book, and he didn't like the title he had, and he was telling me what it was about, and I just looked at him, and I said, when affirmative action was white, and that was my title, and which he very kindly uh, acknowledged in the book, so I think that's true, um, and, I, and I think that's one of the reasons Iris' scholarship is so important, because he has been very, he was very, he is a great friend of the New Deal in certain respects, so am I, but he was very conscious of the ways in which, in order to get the New Deal through a Congress where there were a lot of Southern segregationist committee chairs who were Democrats, um, the New Deal, you know, Social Security itself excluded domestic workers. It excluded a lot of groups who happened to be disproportionately um, African American. Um, there were, I, I mean, what's, what's interesting is that African Americans in the North um, uh, became, on the whole, supporters of FDR uh, because, A, um, you know, the witness of others in the New Deal, particularly Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, was on behalf of civil rights, even though FDR himself was timid. Um, but also there were other aspects of that program um, that ended up uh, lifting up African Americans, and probably the most important was the Wagner Act that allowed the formation of unions. And once African Americans moved north and began working, particularly in steel and auto, um, they became members of the UAW, the United Steel Workers, that raised their wages. So there were sort of New Deal things that made African Americans convert from Republican to Democrat. But you're absolutely right about the exclusion, and that you're absolutely right that um, the New Deal helped lift up previously uh, underprivileged whites to a better position, even as African Americans weren't lifted up. Uh, but comment. One in terms of the uh, march uh, for freedom, for work, and for freedom. Uh, that goes back, of course, to the New Deal when uh, Randolph threatened the march and uh, he didn't carry it out because of the uh, action of uh, Roosevelt creating a Fair Employment Practices Commission, yeah. Commission, but that uh, commission uh, never accomplished anything 
which is really beneficial uh, for uh, African uh, Americans. Uh, the implementation, as in most civil rights acts, uh, it, it was not very good. No, I mean, I think the war, the, you know, the war happened and it was an excuse to sort of not to push on that front. Truman came along and at least did act on the, in the case of the military. I mean, you know, I think one of the sort of hidden strengths of the civil rights movement uh, two of it were, had to do with foreign policy in the first instance because so many African Americans fought for the United States in World War II and it became untenable to have all these GIs come home to segregation and it created I think both, they created a kind of pressure that didn't exist before. And the other was the Cold War, uh, where we were appealing to um, nations, third world nations that were mostly people of color uh, at a time when our country was segregated. And so it became in the foreign policy interest of the United States to move on civil rights. So I think, you know, as I say, I think the movement itself was deeply important. I think the movement's language approach and argument was deeply important, but I think there are other factors that had to do with self-interest, again, an Eborian point, that uh, you, know, you can do the right thing for the right reasons and you can do the right things for sort of self-interested reasons, but at least they get you there. So thank you for that, sir. I appreciate it. Please. Maybe the last one. Yeah. Oh, okay. My brilliant student, thank you. Thanks for your talk. I have a very brief question. I wondered if you could speak to your use of the word militant throughout your talk this evening. I was surprised to hear you say it, and not because of, I think, what the spirit that it was representing, but uh, yeah, the particular choice of that word. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I, I appreciate the question. But could I ask you quickly, uh, just pass it back to the mic, what is it about militant that surprised you, if you don't mind my asking back? I guess uh, in class throughout the semester, we've talked a lot about Dr. King, and I don't think you've ever used the word militant. You've instead said radical. Oh. And both of them, you know, could potentially be good or bad light. Generally, it's... it's uh, up for discussion, obviously, but you know, I, I think some thing. of it. Um, first of all, I think militant is not a bad word, and I, I use it in a positive sense. And I think I, I may have been looking for a strong word because I was calling for understanding and did not want in any way to say that understanding was intended to get in the way of forceful action. Number two, I think I was using. Um, the language of King himself. I mean, militancy, correct me if I'm wrong, Professor Williams, but militancy was a term of art, in a sense, in the civil rights movement that King himself uh, used. I think in the I Have a Dream speech, a, the, the, he talks about the glorious spirit of a new militancy. I think that's a, a phrase in there. So I think I was affected in my thinking by King's own language and by the language of the movement uh, of the time. Um, but I also wanted to convey, I mean, I really do think this is a dangerous time uh, for us. It's a dangerous time for our country. Um, it is a time when I think democracy uh, is under threat. It is a time where we're seeing a real rollback in achievements uh, that we thought were secure, whether it's vote with the Voting Rights Act has been gutted by the court, and now we have 
voter suppression laws uh, around the country. Um, we thought that there, we, we knew there was opposition immigration, but we never expected to have a president um, uh, speak about uh, immigrants uh, from other countries in the way this uh, president had. We never expected to see the threats to women uh, that we see today. Um, we never expected to see this kind of challenge to basic decency. And so if there's ever a time where militancy strikes me as an appropriate word, uh, this is it. And I call for understanding, not because I want to um, reduce our militancy in any way in opposing what I see as some deep wrongs, uh, but rather to say that to win this fight, um, we need to, uh, as is, I'll use my convert word, uh, we need to convert some hearts or minds or uh, political attitudes of people who currently disagree with us. Um, and I think we can do that by acknowledging that there are some people out there who really are uh, so deeply racist and prejudiced that they are not likely to listen to us anyway. But there are a lot of other people um, whom I think are prepared to listen uh, to people who at least convey some sense that they are suffering too, that they have uh, legitimate concerns. And so that's why I think we have to combine militancy uh, with an effort to reach out in a spirit of brotherhood. Thank you. And sisterhood, I should add. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it.